This podcast is also part of a pod course, which is available for credit on speechtherapypd.com. All you need to do is register for the course, complete the requirements, and you will receive credit. Speechtherapypd.com is a video continuing education company, a certified ASHA CE provider. More than ever, I am super selective on how I spend my time, whether it's choosing which emails to read or how I get my continuing ed units. I want value for my time and efforts. I'm Shar Beauchart, and I bet you can relate. So when I say I get my CEUs from SpeechTherapyPD.com, just know their speech language videos and pod courses are practical and totally worth it. And right now, you have the exclusive opportunity to pay less for the subscription than I did. <laughs> okay? Memorize this discount code. It's SHAR, C-H-A-R. Just go to SpeechTherapyPD.com, subscribe, and at checkout, type in what? SHAR, C-H-A-R. You get a $10 discount for heaven's sakes. <laughs> Do it now. It doesn't take long. SpeechTherapyPD.com. You and your speech kids will be glad you did. It's time well spent. Welcome to The Speech Link. I'm your host, Shar Beauchart, and I invite you to listen and learn practical strategies from experienced experts to take your therapy to the next level. When I was in the schools, there were a few times when I felt totally out of my element and was at a loss for exactly what to do. Usually it involves some cute little kindergartner that just stole my heart <laughs> and he wasn't communicating in English. Typically, he was from Mexico, but he could have been literally from anywhere. And it was my job to determine if he was delayed in his first language or merely a child doing his best to learn English. I needed help. I needed guidelines. I needed Celeste. <laughs> Grab your pen and paper. She's got a lot to share on the subject. My guest is Dr. Celeste Roseberry McKibben. She's the daughter of Baptist missionaries and lived in the Philippines from the ages of 6 to 17. She received her PhD from Northwestern University. Her primary research interests are in the areas of assessment and treatment of culturally and linguistically diverse students with communication disorders, as well as service delivery to students from low-income backgrounds. She's made over 300 well-received presentations nationally and internationally, written over 70 publications, including 16 books. Her most current is Love, Talk, Read to Help Your Child Succeed, which is the basis for her Children's Book Drive, where over 225,000 books have been donated to those who need them. Celeste is the fellow of the American Speech Language Hearing Association, the recipient of ASHA's Certificate of Recognition for Special Contributions in Multicultural Affairs, and was awarded the National Presidential Daily Point of Light Award for her volunteer work in building literacy skills of children in poverty. Currently, she is a professor of communication sciences and disorders at California State University, Sacramento, and a part-time speech-language pathologist in the San Juan Unified School District. She provides services to students from preschool through high school. Oh, Celeste, I cannot wait to hear your words of wisdom. Welcome to the Speech Link. 
Oh, thanks so much, Char. It's really exciting to be here. Well, I am excited for you to be here. I know your passion is for individuals in our country and beyond that have limited reading skills and communication skills and are lacking in materials. But I know that you lived in the Philippines during many of your formative years. And I was just wondering, did living there ignite your passion for helping English learners by any chance? You know, Shar, it sure did, and I'm glad you asked. So I turned six on the trip over there, and I remember landing in Manila with my Baptist missionary parents and three younger sisters, and I had just learned to read. I was excited about that, and I looked around me, and all the signs were in Tagalog. That was my first introduction to not understanding the language. So then my uh, parents put me in Jose Abad Santos Memorial School in Manila, where I um, was a first grader, but a year younger than everybody else and the only white child in the school. And I did not speak the language. So we um, had that. And then we moved to one or two different islands where one more time, I was the only white child in the school and not real fluent in the language. So um, there were a lot of wonderful benefits to growing up in the Philippines. But what I do remember is I'm getting bullied a lot and by the kids because I didn't speak the language and was the only white kid. And then I also had a lot of trouble. And I, I just kind of look back and think to myself that if they'd had special ed, I probably would have gotten put into it. Luckily, at that time, they didn't have those resources. But yes, that absolutely at the age of six began my passion for reaching students who are linguistically and culturally diverse. Wow. What a beginning. Yeah, from the very beginning. Yes. And at six, you really don't know what's going on. No. And I remember just being so small and so white. And, you know, Char, the truth is most of the time I just felt stupid. And I remember that so clearly. And that gives me a lot of empathy for the children that I say work with right now, where you don't speak the language, you know, you're a different color, you know, you don't understand what's going on. It's a very, very vulnerable place to be. And for people that don't know you, you are a blonde, gorgeous lady. So you didn't even have dark hair. <laughs> you were a blonde. I mean, you totally stood out. Oh, bless your heart. Yeah. And I remember on this one little island that we went to, we were the only white people and we would be passing by these Nipah huts and mothers would hold up crying babies who would stop crying when they saw my sisters and me because we were the only white people they'd ever seen before. Oh, you were a novelty. Oh, yes. Mm. But you said that you had just learned to read. So you knew that you had, you know, some level of intellect, but because of your environment and perhaps they kept wanting you to answer in a, in, in a different language or respond differently, that kind of made you feel lesser than or unable to do it or, but you didn't feel adequate? You know, definitely. I didn't feel adequate because in Manila, of course, we spoke Tagalog and then we moved to the island of Tablas, where in the barrio of Ojongan, we spoke Ojonganon, and then church was in Hiligaynon, and then in school, we were taught formal Tagalog. And then we spoke pidgin English in the barrio and the coconut groves with our friends. So we really had, my sisters and me, probably four or five different languages going on at the same time. So every island you move to, the, the language is different. 
Oh, I can't even imagine. So how did you do with all of that? I mean, did you actually learn the language or did you learn just enough to get you by? How did you handle or deal with all of that? Well, I was very lucky that I was a very early and very precocious reader. And so I tried to learn the Tagalog. I spoke Ojonganon in the barrio, but that was very informal. And then my mom, in addition to sending me to the Filipino school, she homeschooled me and my sisters with this American program. So it was almost sharp, like going to school double, really. And I think that that's what really helped me to be able to succeed in college in the States once we got back was my mother's home schooling. And then when I was nine, she sent me to um, Faith Academy, a boarding school in Manila for American kids. And so that way I was exposed to English all the time. Okay. So you had help and support. Yeah, I was so blessed. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So you can transfer a lot of your experiences to many of the children that you see today. Is that correct? Yes, yeah, sure. Absolutely. I know just how they feel. Now, you are working in a school that has several children coming in from other countries, and seems like you said that they, that you have children speaking Arabic. Goodness. So California really is getting an influx of a lot of different people, different nationalities, and so on. So I'm hoping that you can tell us how we can work within and to help all of these individuals. But let's get started here. I love your title that you chose for this podcast. It's Best Practices in Non-Biased Assessment of English Learners with Potential Language Impairment. Potential Language Impairment because we really don't know until we evaluate them. But I want to get back to that non-biased assessment. That makes me think that maybe we have assessment tools that are biased, <laughs> or you know, in some way the standardized testing is not doing its job or what it needs to be able to do. Tell me more about that. Okay, absolutely. So a lot of times people will say to me, Shar, well, do we have tests in Vietnamese or different languages? Unfortunately, that's not the answer because of the great heterogeneity of languages. And then a lot of times people will take an English test and translate it into the child's language through an interpreter. And that has a lot of psychometric problems. So you can't really do that because the student that is in front of me is not represented in the norming sample. And then also, our non our, our standardized tests are based on a very Western literate middle class framework where we expect children to respond to a stranger, to verbally elaborate on their knowledge, and culturally this is not congruent for many kids. So you add on to that then the fact that these tests, like I said, were normed on English learners and the biases are just rampant. So unfortunately those are not the answer. Oh, that makes total sense. So what do we do? You know, I've heard you talk about dynamic assessment as well as other things. Take us, get us started, get us going here. You can go and take as much time as you want to get us into what do we do? How do we do? Why do we do it? And I know that you have some, you know, several pages here. I think nine or 10 pages of a really good handout for us. So take it away. Tell us what we need to know. 
Okay, well, thank you, Shar. So as public school clinicians, a lot of times it's very hard for us to take the time to do this, but it's worth its weight in gold. And that is that we have to do a pre-evaluation questionnaire, ideally with the teacher and the parent and the interpreter if we can get one. So I find it's important to ask case history questions. So kind of back to that junior child language class, how old was the child when they said their first word in Vietnamese, say? How old were they when they put two words together? Um, when they hit the age of 24 months, we know a child should be saying two to 300 words in their primary language. Was the child doing that? So the number one thing we really have to do is start off with a very, very thorough case history. Boy, does that make sense. And you have a form here. Is it in here? Is it in your handout? It sure is, Char. So if we turn to page two of the handout, it says English language learner pre-referral screening. And what I did was I've developed this over the years working as a public school clinician, because what this does is it serves as a guide for us in terms of what questions that we want to ask about that child. Now, Char, mind you, the child has not even been seen for a special ed evaluation, but using this form, which doesn't take that long to administer, you can get a lot of questions and Answered. And so what I do, again, is I try to interview the interpreter, maybe the mom and the classroom teacher. I write their answers in different colors of pen, and I see if their concerns converge into one area. So, for example, in the middle of page two, um, when did the child speak their first word in their first language? Um, at what age did the child combine two words? So I've had situations where I've had, you know, the, the mom say, oh, he didn't say his first word in Vietnamese until he was four years old. Well, we know, obviously, that that's a sign of a language impairment. But if we forget to ask those basic questions, we miss a lot of information. So you are doing this at the school. The parent is there, the interpreter is there, the classroom teacher is there. So it's basically a meeting. Is it is it like a student study team meeting or, you know, how how do you get around all of that? You know, I have to laugh. I wish it was a meeting, but in the real world, usually it's, uh, I catch the interpreter, I catch the teacher in the, in the lunchroom at lunch, <laughs> and then I try to call home or speak to the parent um, on the phone through an interpreter. So okay. it's usually separate, but then I do, I do kind of see if everybody converges on the same concerns. Yes. Okay. So you're doing it on the fly. That's called reality. Okay. I gotcha. I was on crosswalk duty yesterday in my public school's job and talk about catching people on the fly. That's what that is. <laughs> yes, I know. I know. I have conducted several quotes meetings out in the parking lot. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. You grab them. Yeah, you just grab them when you can. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Okay, so that just that bit of information from that parent about the child when they were young in their first language gives you a base of knowledge. So gives you that information to build on. So does that send you down one path to either head toward testing or away from, or what do you do next? 
Okay, so here here's a typical child. So I, I've talked to the parents, and let's say the parents are concerned. So my next thing is to talk to the classroom teacher. And if we look at page three, current classroom interventions and modifications, I see what the teacher has already been doing to help that child. So we're going to take a little girl I'll call um, Juanita. And this is an actual case. I'm carrying stuff into the school. This man rushes forward to help me. It's Juanita's dad. He finds out I'm the speech therapist. So, oh, my daughter wasn't talking in Spanish. I'm really worried. So because she's having difficulty in the first language and there's a parent concern, now that's on my radar, Shar. So the next thing is to um, approach the classroom teacher and on page three there again, see if she's concerned. And if she is, my next question is, well, what are you doing in the classroom above and beyond that which the regular kids are getting? And so let's say the teacher says, well, nothing. Then what I'm saying is, okay, we're going to need an SST and we're going to talk about what can go on in the classroom that is non-special ed that can be extra support for Juanita. And then once we get that extra support going for about six months, if that's not enough, then we are looking at special education evaluation. Okay. All right. So Juanita's first language is what? Uh, In this case, it's Spanish, but I have kids. We are the largest receiver of immigrants and refugees in the United States, the third largest. So our fastest growing languages are Arabic and Farsi. So if I'm lucky, I get a Spanish speaker, but it's usually a child who speaks Arabic, Farsi, um, Russian, or Ukrainian. Oh, my. You're talking about in the San Juan School District where you are currently working, correct? Yes. uh Uh-huh. We have a huge Slavic population as well. So you do not have interpreters for all of those languages, do you? Or do you? You know, we have interpreters for most of them. And I'm going to confess something that I sort of hate. If I'm desperate, I had been known to use a family member. It is not best standard, Char, but sometimes that's all you've got. So yes. Yeah, knowing that the family member, it's not best practices. What I find with these children, and kind of getting back to page three, if I may, for a minute on that form, um, I do use, I try to use an interpreter. And before the child's even seen, I look to see, are, are there like classroom language use concerns? Does a child in both the first language and English have difficulty telling a story, describing familiar objects? And then if we go to page four, I'm going to be asking about that child's social skills. So before I even saw Samuel, this is a, I'm I'm shifting gears here, but this is an eighth grader from Uzbekistan whose primary language was Uzbeki. And the teacher of the sheltered English classroom at the junior high said, you know, one of the things I'm worried about is all the other Slavic students are friends, but none of them get along with Samuel. He has a lot of social skill problems. That was a really big red flag for me. And then on page four are just a lot of other questions that I'll ask the teacher, the mom, the interpreter. So let's say that they say that there's a family history of learning problems. That child has learned the first language more slowly than his siblings. Those are very, very big red flags for me. And so if we move on then to page five, um, just kind of looking at what are our options. If teacher, interpreter, and family are all concerned, and I'm seeing a lot of red flags in L1, the first language, then we're going to move toward a speech language evaluation. 
Ooh, okay. So you do a lot of work up front to determine if you should actually do the testing or not. I do. And I, I get asked about that a lot. That makes sense. It sure does. And it's hard, Char, because, you know, we're all busy, we're all crazy, but we want to just get that kid in, test them like we traditionally do in an hour and a half and get those numbers and write the report. There's a lot of front loading on an assessment of an English learner. Char Beauchard here. True story. I just hung up the phone with an SLP that had attended an on-site seminar. She said she loved the seminar, but she forgot to fill out her ASHA participant form. Sounds easy enough, huh? Uh-uh. The seminar was three months ago, and all the paperwork had been submitted, and ASHA doesn't take late forms. So I said, Linda, you have to file an appeal with ASHA. Then she said, this is a nightmare. I drove two hours to get there, two hours to get home, and now I have to file an appeal. I felt for her. And then I said, Linda, have you ever heard of SpeechTherapyPD.com? She said, no. I said, just get your CEUs online, girl. That's what I do. You don't have to leave home. They have over 500 hours of video, a huge variety of topics for SLPs that work with children and adults. And if you don't want to watch a video, then listen to the pod courses and get your CEUs that way. Then she said, they're pretty expensive, right? I said, uh, no. Their plans start at $89 a year, for heaven's sake. And then I I said, do you want the icing on the cake? SpeechTherapyPD.com has scheduled a CEU cruise next summer to Italy and Greece. Woohoo! She said, okay, I'm looking them up right now. And so should you. SpeechTherapyPD.com. Check them out. Tell your friends. You'll be glad you did. Okay, now I am thinking in the back of my mind about you flying over to the Philippines and then being dropped into this school as the only English-speaking child there. And your parents would tell them that you developed speech and language early on and that you were just fine. But you weren't functioning well in the classroom because you didn't know the language. So how long do you give a child is there a length of time or how do you gauge that? Or you just say, okay, the child has the capability to learn his first language. Okay, he probably has the capability to learn the second language, to learn English. I mean, how does that get sorted out? Okay, um, it's such a good question. The research of Jim Cummins, and, and it's in um, my book, um, he talks about the fact that for a typically developing child learning a second language, it takes two to three years to become native-like in your conversational second language. It takes five to ten years to become proficient at a native-like level with academic language. So two to three years for conversational English and five to ten years for academic English. So, Char, we've got to be kind of careful. Are we talking about just social conversational proficiency? Two to three years. Academic proficiency, it will take a typically developing child five to ten years at least to learn that cognitive academic language proficiency. 
Wow. So what do we do? We just try and help the child as best as best we can. Is that what we do? Do we put them into a separate classroom? Do we keep them integrated, uh, you know, assimilated with other kids as his or her age? What do we do? Okay, so let's, I'm just going to take Maria now. She was a Spanish speaker and she came to us in kindergarten and she was with, you know, in a regular kindergarten and we didn't want to jump the gun. You know, I I know you know what I'm saying here, Char. We didn't want to jump the gun. But one of the key questions that we need to be asking is when we compare this child with other children from her cultural and linguistic background, does she stand out among other Spanish speaking children in poverty in her community? Community as having an inordinate amount of difficulty compared to them. So she did. And so we, we went ahead. So you've got the regular classroom and then you've got regular classroom with kind of some minor modifications, front row seating, a peer tutor that wasn't working with Maria. So then we gave her more intensive non-special ed interventions like reading clinic and a primary language tutor that wasn't working either. So I would say that you we want to go for at least, I think, unless it's something really flagrant like a praxia or something, we want to go for about one or two years with more and more intense support. And if I would say by the end of first grade with intensive non-special ed support, if that's not enough, then we've got to start rolling up our sleeves and thinking about a special ed evaluation. Okay. You have done the, you've done your homework, you've talked with the parents, the slash caregivers, and you found out about the child developmentally, you've looked at his or her social skills, how he's actually, quotes, getting on in the classroom, looking at basically how he's picking up and interacting and so on. What else? What's next? What do we do? You've, you have determined whether the child needs extra testing or not. What if the child does? Where do we go from there? Okay, so I'm going to go back to Maria. So what we the first thing we need to do, Shar, is to determine, okay, is the child a balanced bilingual or have are they, okay, is their first language their dominant language? Or have they lost so much of the first language that now English is their dominant language? So that information is, is you know procured by an ESL specialist. And once we find that out, then we know what language we're going to test in. So we're going to take Maria. She was pretty much a balanced bilingual bilingual in third grade. So I did have a Spanish speaking interpreter come in and I I, we tested in both English and Spanish using informal measures, and we compared the scores. I find that for legal reasons, because the IDEA is so strong on non-discrimination, it's ideal to at least attempt to assess a child in the first language. And if, if they are dominant in English, you can always say in the report, hey, I had this interpreter, I tried, and this has happened to me multiple times, I tried to assess them in the first language. And it was clear that English was their preferred language. So the rest of the evaluation was carried out in English. It just depends upon the student. Good to know. Now, let's talk more about the dynamic assessment. That sounds like it's an ongoing assessment, maybe with lots of interaction and so on. What does it look like? Okay, so dynamic assessment, okay, the first form of it I like to use is RTI or response to intervention. So here's Maria and she's struggling and the third grade teacher comes and says, wow, Celeste, she's way behind the other Spanish speaking children. So my first shot at dynamic assessment, Shar, is going to be to 
have that classroom teacher give Maria every extra non-special ed support possible, like reading clinic, after-school homework club. And we do that for about six months. Now, we're going to assume with Maria that that was done, actually, and that was not enough. So now I'm going to get that requester assessment sign. I'm going to get the Spanish-speaking interpreter, and we're going to schedule an evaluation. So we've already done some dynamic assessment in the classroom setting through the teacher doing response to intervention and finding out that that's not sufficient. I'll tell you, Shar, what, what I've seen over time is that if the child has solely environmental issues and or maybe poverty of being a big one and normal underlying language learning ability, those extra classroom interventions for six months are going to be sufficient. If those interventions are not sufficient, now it's time for a full evaluation. So dynamic assessment, and this is the work of Elizabeth Pena and a lot of wonderful researchers. So we've done dynamic assessment basically by having the classroom teacher do extras in the classroom. If that's enough, hallelujah, and it often is, but if it's not enough, what I'm going to do is bring that child in and I'm going to test a child and see things they don't know. For example, certain vocabulary words they don't know. Maybe they don't know how to tell a story in sequence. So I'm going to do a test um, teach and retest paradigm. Test a child, see what they don't know, teach them those new things, and then retest them to see how well they learn. And what I'm looking for is um, things like, has there been a small or a large change? It, so let's say that with Maria, there's only been a very small change. I worked and repeated and repeated and worked, and she's still not getting it. Um, she's not learning quickly. She's showing what Laura Justice calls treatment resistance, that's part of dynamic assessment. And that says to me that there is a real language impairment. She's not getting it despite repeated teaching attempts. Okay. So what tests are you using? Are they informal tests or are they standardized? What are you using? Um, I'm using mainly informal measures. And so I might be using like one, one really good thing I love to do is to use those, um, you know, we all have them sure in our cupboards, but those narrative sequencing cards, I'm teaching her how to sequence cards and tell a story. And what I'm, I'm seeing from her is that despite rep repeated teaching, she's not really catching on. So it's a lot of informal methods. And then, so I'm doing that with dynamic assessment. I'm assessing her ability to learn when provided with instruction. So the teachers tried that, the teachers failed. I'm trying that with vocabularies, sequencing cards for narrative, and she still is not catching on. So do you teach specific vocabulary words? Um, yes, I try to as part of a, a, of a dynamic assessment. But the big one that I like is to look at narrative skills. And if you're interested, I can just kind of chat about narratives and the kinds of things that we're looking for. Yes, please do. That is my favorite way to do language therapy is through narrative instruction. Okay. Well, this is really wonderful because in the last five or 10 years, they've come out with a lot of research with children who speak Estonian and French and Dutch and Spanish and Cantonese to show that narrative assessment is very, very successful in differentiating a language difference from disorder. So when I'm having, when I'm trying to teach the child how to tell a story and build those narrative skills, I'm looking at the child's macro structure and micro structure. So with macro structure, 
can the child retain the theme of a story, tell the sequence of events, that those are the main things. With microstructure, I'm really looking at features of complexity. So for example, the number of utterances, the number of words, but Shar, excitingly, there was a 2018 study that just came out with children who speak Mandarin. And so I'm doing this now where we're looking at the number of different words that a child says in their L1 in English. And so if the child has a true language impairment, the interpreter, you know, we can have an interpreter with this, but compared to children from the same language and cultural background, the child with a genuine language impairment is going to have um, more simple utterances and a lot more fillers and reformulations and a much lesser um, threshold for a number of different words. So those are some of the things that we're looking for when we do narrative assessment. So in doing your narrative therapy with your EL children, do you do stories that they're going to be talking about and learning in the classroom to reinforce that? Are you pulling out other stories that you have favorites that you know that that the vocabulary in there is going to be beneficial to that child, that maybe it's a little more basic, or maybe it's something that's going to be, that's going to pertain to that child's age. How do you select? Okay, the way I select is embarrassingly easy. So here I am admitting this on a podcast. I do have a lot of wonderful, right? A lot of wonderful books in my therapy room that I can use. I'm very partial to holiday books. But Char, what I do is most of the time we go and pick up the kids. Like yesterday when I was in my school's job, we go to the classroom, pick the kids up. And I just say to the classroom teacher, could you send her English language arts book with her? So the kids end up bringing their English language arts books to therapy. And I usually work from the story that they're working on right then and there. And I've got to tell you, it's, it's a lot of money in the bank. The teachers love it. The children are familiar with it. Just yesterday, I did that with a 17-year-old with cochlear implants who spoke nothing but American Sign Language until, until he was 10. And so that's what I do. And it works great because it's easy, it's relevant, and I know that I'm tying in with the curriculum. The kids Kids love it. The teachers love it. Yeah. See, that makes a great deal of sense to me because especially with the EL kids, I think that obviously, and I know that you believe this, that our primary focus is transfer, that what we do in therapy has to transfer back into the classroom or we're just spinning our wheels. I you know, I so agree. And yesterday, you know, one of my friends was saying, oh, maybe we could play this holiday bingo game. And I, that's fine. I have nothing against that. But I want to cut right to the chase. We have so little time with these kids. And I am passionate, again, getting back to that six-year-old me, mm -hmm. I'm passionate about helping the children succeed in the classroom setting. And what better way to do that than to use classroom materials? Yes. Let's shift gears here just a bit. Um, well, in fact, before we shift gears, is there anything else that you want to talk about in regards to dynamic assessment? Um, thank you. No, I, I think just to kind of reemphasize the point that it's 
Okay, in static assessment, you're saying, what does a child know today? In dynamic, you are evaluating their ability to learn over time when provided with instruction. And I'll kind of wind it up. We have so many, as I said, refugees from the Middle East. I got an email last week about a nine-year-old who's had one year of schooling because he's been in refugee camps. So anything knowledge-based that we give him is going to be biased. Dynamic assessment cuts away from all that and looks at his ability to learn when we provide him with instruction. And that's the whole thing that we're after. Mm -hmm. That would be nice to do with most of the kids that we see. (laughs) Oh, it sure would, right? (laughs) What would publishers and tests do? (laughs) Yeah, I don't think they would like it. Okay, let's shift gears just a bit here. And I know that you assess memory and processing as well. Yes. And Char, you have just tapped into the thing that I'm most excited about. Dynamic assessment is great. What I, the very gold standard to me in our profession today is um, looking at information processing, also known as working memory. And I'd be happy to talk about how I do that. Please do. Okay. So um, there was a study that came out in 1998 that started this whole furor that said that non-word repetition had a lot of potential for differentiating language difference from disorder with English language learner children in poverty. And I jumped at it and thought, oh my gosh, hallelujah. Well, the good news is that now in 2019, that study by Dolligan and Campbell all those years ago, 21 years ago, we found that it really does work. So, um, the biggest thing that we can do is look at a child's working memory. So, what I like to do is um, use non-word repetition because this is a task that works ages three through the age of 18 and beyond. Um, Char, if you don't mind, I'm going to just throw this in. I've got my YouTube channel, and if you just go to YouTube and type in Celeste Roseberry, I've got a, a lot of demo videos of assessment and treatment, but I've got a couple of demo videos of how to do that with a child who speaks Spanish and one who's Samoan. And so I'm basically using digits and non-words to test their working memory on the spot. Hmm. Is there a specific YouTube video that we should be looking for? Or um, Yes, if you look at the one um, that, that's on there on using working memory measures for assessing language impairment, that one is on there. And I've also got on pages 9 and 10 of the handout some specific tasks that clinicians can use as well. Okay, I'm pulling up here. And I'm sure everybody listening is going to be pulling up as well. So is this the one, SLP's Impact on Language and Literacy, that one? Okay, this this is page 9 and 10. And the title of it says, yeah, Information Processing Tasks for English Language Learners. Oh, I'm sorry. I was on, I was on YouTube's. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. so sorry. I'm Whoops. sorry. It's called communication, right? Right. Okay. Okay. Well, let's go to 9 and 10, <laughs> then we'll look at the videos here. Okay, information process. Gotcha. I'm with you. Okay, so um, basically what I do is I pick out nonsense syllables. And you're going to notice, Char, that those nonsense syllables are things like got, he, po, be. And there's got to be nonsense syllables that have phonemes that the persons can produce. So none of my nonsense syllables have R, L, S, or TH because those, um, those sounds are not in some of the languages. So what I do is, and we'll see it in the video, but I'll say, I'm going to pretend you're the kid if you don't mind. Okay. 
Okay. So, um, Shar, you are seven years old, and we're going to say that you speak Russian. And um, I've, I've got a Russian interpreter there who's making sure you understand everything. So, I'm going to say, Shar, honey, we're going to talk a new magic language. Are you ready to have some fun with me? Yes. Okay. So, sweetie, let's try this. These are magic new words. I want you to say, ga nye. Ga nye. Okay, nice listening, Char. That's way too easy for you. So now I'm going to have you say some more of the magic language. Let's do this. Ne-fa-da. Ne-fa-da. Excellent, Char. These are still too easy. You're a smart girl. And I'm going to go on, Char, and here's what my audience members all say when they see these videos, whether it's non-words, you know, like the syllables we just did, the nonsense syllables or digits. I've even had teenagers, after three in a row, they fall off a cliff. It's pretty crazy. Um, but And what I like about these nonsense syllables is that when they fall off a cliff after three and they have trouble sequencing, they they start reversing, they start getting confused. What you know is at the end of the day that that doesn't rely on their background knowledge. That relies sheerly 100% on working memory. And that's what's so exciting. It doesn't matter how poor they are. It doesn't matter if they're refugees who haven't ever been in school in their life. You're tapping right into the integrity of the language learning system. Ooh, I like that. Okay, it goes all the way up. I see. Great. Now, let's get you back to the YouTube videos, okay? Okay. Now, are you on here demonstrating what you just did? Is that what they are? Yes, I'm going to give you the exact title of the YouTube video, Shar. It's some um, differentiating language difference from language impairment using nonsense syllables. And in that, I'm assessing an eight-year-old Samoan student. It's only a couple of minutes long, and it is amazing how revealing that is. Mm-hmm. Well, looks like you have several several videos here. Okay. Yeah. That is e- excellent. And I'm sorry, Shar, there's one more, and it's on my YouTube. It's called How to Use Digit Repetition to Assess for Language Impairments. So one is a Samoan-speaking eight-year-old boy, and the other is a seven-year-old Spanish-speaking girl. See, this is excellent because not everyone is going to have access to your handout. Right. So that gives them some some information. Also, I know that there's going to be a couple people that would just really like this handout. Would you mind giving your email address? Oh, yes, of course. I'm happy to do that. Yeah, so I'll go ahead. It's um, Celeste at csus.edu. That's C-E-L-E-S-T-E at C-S-U-S dot E-D-U. Okay. Well, what else would you like to tell us about memory and processing? Um, Okay. Shar, could I tell a very fast story with a teenager about how that worked? Well, you can tell a slow story if you want. Okay, thank you. All right. So I really love this because it works for children from ages two through teens, like I just said, and it's really been supported across the languages. So instead of boring you with the research articles, which are in my book, this has been proven to work with two through teens for children who speak Spanish, Vietnamese, French, Cantonese, Italian, and Portuguese. So it's very well supported. 
And so here's just a fast story. I work with sex offenders at a safe school that is, uh, these are teenage young men with just a rap sheet as long as your arm. So the safe school I work at is one step above juvenile hall. So I went to assess a young man. I'll, I'll just give him a pseudonym, Eddie Gutierrez. And Eddie was a um, 16-year-old who couldn't really read. They thought it was just an ESL issue. And I was there to screen him for articulation. But the social worker said, I think it's more than just a problem with his S. I think he has language processing problems. Well, I didn't have a signed request for assessment. So, Shar, what I did with him is to test his S, quote, unquote. I said, Eddie, I want you to say, sa, si, se, sa. And wouldn't you know, this 16-year-old with these nonsense syllables could not do more than three. I was absolutely blown away. So I called my director and she said, oh, it's just ESL. He's poor. And I said, no, I really think there's more. We get me and the psychologist and the resource specialist all testing him. Sure enough, the 16-year-old has a severe learning disability that went undiagnosed for all those years because everyone just blew him off. But in that little tiny 10 to 15 to 20 second um, nonsense syllable repetition task, it was all right there. It was the craziest thing I've ever seen. So I really love working memory tasks, especially nonsense syllables, as a marvelous way to distinguish language difference from disorder. Well, that was a, a really good discovery. Now, I remember you and I talking just briefly about Individuals that are incarcerated in our prisons, they have poor reading skills or poor reading habits. Um, is there a correlation between the reading and the print language and the oral language and their behaviors? What is all of that? What have you discovered? Okay. Well, I appreciate you asking because as we, you just said, that's a real passion for me. So I, I can certainly give references if people are interested, but according to the One World Literacy Foundation, children who finish fourth grade, reading below um, grade level, two thirds of them at some point will be incarcerated on welfare or all of the above. Um, 70% of our, of our prisoners here in the United States cannot read above a fourth grade level. So there's a very, very strong relationship between low literacy and eventual incarceration. And that's why I'm so passionate to try to address literacy skills at an early age. It, in California, it costs us probably 54 to 60,000 a year to house a prisoner, whereas it's about $8,000 a year for us to educate a child in the public schools. Hmm. Yeah, there's a very strong relationship. And Shara, that's the thing that keeps me awake at night. Uh, and with these, with these young men, the, I've been, these sex offenders, these teenagers who I've been privileged to work with, I've seen once I'm able to get them literate with the help of the team, a lot of them, like the one I saw yesterday, I'll call him Sammy, not his real name. He came to us two years ago with a string of offenses as long as your arm, cochlear implant, the whole nine yards, parents incarcerated. Right now, as of yesterday, he told me he's gonna he's doing so well, he's gonna graduate from high school early and study to become a diesel mechanic, where he'll probably start working at around eighty-one thousand dollars a year. That is the power of love and literacy. It's very exciting. Yes, it opens up their world and changes their life. You bet. That's amazing. You know, that moves us into 
another one of your passions, Love Talk Read. And I just love this. And I'll fess up. You sent me your book and some literature and some other things. And I've been reading through and I'm fascinated with what you're doing, but what is happening with this movement. I'm going to call it a movement. And would you share that with us? Okay, well, thank you. Um, sure. So back in 2008, one of my grad students needed some children's books for her thesis. And the students asked me how many I wanted to collect. And I said, oh, about 500. That, that felt so daring that I went out and bought the first 60 out of my own pocket. But so then we continued to collect books. I know, right? No faith. And then my mom died 10 years ago, and I continued the book drive in her memory. And so right now we've got, you know, over the 200 25,000 books that we've been able to not only distribute in the greater Sacramento area, but also send to multiple developing nations. So it's really exciting. And I have a huge advantage as a university professor. I get a lot of my books from my students. But Shar, any if on lovetalkread.com, my website, anybody can start a book collection. I had an audience member a couple of years ago in Nova Scotia collect 7,000 children's books just by word of mouth and social media. It was pretty crazy. Anybody can do it. It's fun. It's easy. There's no paperwork. You just kind of need a strong back in a big garage. <laughs> a strong back in a big garage. So you, you're the middleman. You're the middle person here for finding the books, collecting. I, I mean, I don't know. Finding the books, collecting the books, and then giving them to people to distribute? Or how does all of this work? What's the chain? Okay, yeah, I, I am the middleman. In fact, a colleague of mine said, Celeste, you're sort of the Robin Hood of literacy, right? I thought that was pretty cute. So so what I do is I collect the books and then, so I get them from students, neighbors, relatives, and Char, here's the key. You just start telling your family and friends, I am collecting books for birth to 12 or birth through teen. They can be new or gently used. People will jump at the chance to clean out their closets and start donating. And I think a big part of the secret is that the books can be gently used. That's not a problem. And so that's how I get everything. My church, I used to attend a really big church. They gave between ten and 15,000 over time. So I get the books and then there's two ways I decide how to dole them out. Sometimes I'm going to get a request, like a head start will call me and go, oh my gosh, we need books. Other times I'll go find the people. Like <clears throat> a few years ago, I called Juvenile Hall and I said, do you need books. And they're like, oh, heck yeah. So the parole officer, Tiffany, yeah, came because they have no access to the internet because they'll surf for porn. So they basically are bored to tears. So we were able to donate between two and 3,000 books to Juvenile Hall for those who are incarcerated there. And many of the kids will gain a year or two in literacy just because there's reading materials available. It's pretty exciting. That is just totally wonderful. I, I'm just thrilled with what you're doing. But anybody can do it, right? Yeah. Tell us what we need to do. Sure. Anybody can do it. All right. You are a speech pathologist at Apple Elementary in Kentucky, and you're serving a lot of low-income children, and you want books in their hands. What do you do? I would start with your church, and you know, because churches are often very willing to donate. Um, on my 
website, lovetalkradio.com, I have some specific suggestions. Um, you can ask your church, their Lions Club, Rotary, neighbors, friends. My students are mainly 19 through 24 years old. A lot of them do social media and they put it out there on Facebook. So you can basically do it by word of mouth um, through organizations or even on social media. And so you just say, I'm collecting new and gently used children's books for children ages birth to 12. And then you collect for maybe four to six weeks and see what comes in. But I've had people collect hundreds of books by doing just what I'm saying. Okay. So you collect the books. They really are in your garage. (laughs) Sounds like. Got that right. (laughs) And then what? Okay, so I collect the books and then um, I keep some around for people requesting me. But then what I do is I look around for local places in my community where the children need the books. So, for example, um, I worked in one of the highest poverty schools in my district and most of our Head Start kids are Mexicans. So those families have nothing. So I kind of start with where I'm at, seeing what places in my community need books. Um, again, Juvenile Hall, um, There's we have a food closet for refugees. So I've given books to them. So anybody can collect the books and then just kind of look around to see where in your community needs them. You may have kids on your caseload. Um, We do this in our clinic and in my school where we just will give books to the children on our caseload and in our special day classes, and they get to take them home and keep them. And that's very exciting. Oh, Celeste, you are amazing. You have done so much in your young life. And I'm just enthralled with not only what you know, but the contributions that you've made to speech language pathology, to reading, to your community, uh, nationally and internationally. So I'm, I'm thrilled to know you and to have you on the speech link. And, um, I just, you know, one last thing, I don't want to short shrift this, but I know that you have books, you have your websites, you have your email, and I'm sure that there are people that are going to want to contact you and learn more about you. What books would you suggest, you know, in regards to the topics that we've talked about? You gave out your email address, but you might want to do it again. Okay, absolutely. So my email address is C-E-L-E-S-T-E at csus.edu. And then um, I've got my lovetalkread.com website. And so that would be a really good place to go. I have a lot of information on there. And then Char, the last place I'd like to direct listeners to is I've got a website at Sac State. So if you go to Google and just type in Celeste Roseberry, that long Sac State website will come up. And I've got a lot more information on there about books and resources and things that people can start using, you know, really right away on Monday morning to help with assessment as well as literacy. Thank you so much, Celeste, and all the best to you and your your endeavors. And uh, I hope our paths cross again. Thanks so much. Thank you, Char. It's been a great privilege. Bye-bye. Hey, Busy SLP, Char Beauchart here. Here's a tip from me to you. Every week, become a lot more informed. Sign up for Therapy Matters at charbochart.com. It's free. Learn our tech and language tips and techniques and tons of ideas for making your school therapy life easier and more effective. I've been a therapist for 30 plus years and I love to share what I've learned. 
Sign up for Therapy Matters, read it or listen to it at charboshart.com. You'll be glad you did because the therapy that you do matters. Sign up now. Thank you for listening to the speech link. Please check out my other offerings at my website, charvoshart.com, and also speechtherapypd.com. See you next time for more interviews, information, and insights. Until then, thank you so much for all that you do with your speech kids. Be well, and God bless.